0: Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini, lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit. Let's get started. Uh, I'm going to warn you right now, unlike what I normally do, uh, my daughter is in the room with me today, so if you hear some weird noises going on in the background, uh, that is... A toddler playing in the room and possibly getting quite cranky while doing it. But it's what we got to do this week, so. Anywho, um, this is a bit of an interesting episode because, you know, you're reading in uh, Chronicles. um, And most of the major themes in Chronicles we've kind of already covered, both in my overview of these two books, but also in uh, podcasts on the books of Kings and Samuel because they are covering (laughs) the same events largely. Uh, and, and unfortunately for all of us, a huge amount of what's happening in Chronicles is really just a bunch of lists of things, which is not always that interesting. Um, now I'm getting ready to spend a couple of weeks preaching on the book of Romans. Uh, but luckily Romans is so dense and so rich that I think I can do a couple of podcast episodes on the things that I won't be able to really deal with in detail during the sermons, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Romans chapter 4 specifically before I get into uh, a couple of questions that were sent to me uh, before I went on vacation last weekend, and so these questions have been out there for a, a little while, and I, I had recorded two weeks of podcast episodes in advance, uh, and so these questions were sent two weeks ago, so if you've been waiting to hear the answers to them, I'm, I'm sorry it took so long, uh, but we will get to them today. So Romans four, this is when Paul begins talking about Abraham and Abraham's faithfulness and uh, you know the righteousness of Abraham and how that works out. Now, too often we read this as just like a, a good example to follow, right? Hey, look what Abraham did. Be like Abraham. Um, now there's there's truth in that, but what Paul is doing is is much deeper much more important and much more significant than merely holding up Abraham as an example of what faithfulness or righteousness looks like. In Paul's mind, Abraham is not just an example. He he is the very foundation of the gospel. God's promise to Abraham exemplifies everything else that God does. Because fundamentally, Paul's view of the gospel is not about us or how we respond. Paul's view of the gospel is about what God is doing to come and save us. And so Paul looks at the promises that God made to Abraham, largely because God made a covenant with Abraham that did not involve the Torah, did not involve the temple, did not involve the sacrifices and so Paul sees this as incredibly relevant to his own ministry with Gentiles and his own belief that uh, the Torah and the temple are no longer requirements for the covenant because he's looking back to what God did with Abraham before any of that existed and Paul sees very clearly that well if if God could make a covenant with Abraham back before all this happened it must not be the case that God can only work with us through the upholding of the law and the purity rituals and the the temple worship. There must be something else going on. So the Abrahamic covenant then is the basis for everything that follows in the Bible. God has been continuously working to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham throughout the history of Israel. And now, by opening the covenant to the Gentiles, The final fulfillment of that covenant is in sight. And he will deal later with how it is that the Gentiles can be counted amongst Abraham's descendants. But he will make that argument, and we're going to hear a bit about that on Sunday uh, in a roundabout fashion. Because that's not actually the point of the the sermon, but um, he will use that metaphor. And so this is why Paul is so emphatic about the importance of faith. Paul is going to talk a lot about how we are justified by faith. Because he looks back at Abraham and sees that actually the way that Abraham was counted as righteous was because he believed and trusted in God. And more importantly, he was faithful to the covenant he had made with God. This is in contrast to the way that Jewish people of Paul's day, including at one time Paul himself, thought you achieved righteousness which was to rigidly uphold the law as laid out in the Torah. So he's he's not so much contradicting Jewish teaching as he's actually going deeper than basic Jewish teaching and saying, "Look, it's not just actually about these laws we're supposed to uphold. There's something deeper and more fundamental." And really, all the law does is it gives you a framework for having faith. A framework for living faithfully. But it is not the be-all, end-all of living faithfully. And there are other ways to do it. And to understand what I'm really saying, we have to look at actually what kind of faith Abraham had. When we talk about faith, often what we really mean is belief, right? That's that's really what we're talking about most of the time when we talk about faith. When we talk about being justified by faith, most of us are, are really saying we believe that you are you are saved from your sins simply by believing in God. But that really is not actually what Paul is talking about, and that's not really a good explanation of the kind of faith Abraham had. Abraham's faith was not merely belief. Look at what Abraham does with his life, right? He, because God tells him to, right? He, he leaves his home behind, leaves behind everything he's ever known, the whole world he's ever known, and goes wandering around in the wilderness with no clear idea of when and where God would tell him to stop, doesn't even really know if he's walking in the right direction. He just... God never gives him any, any more specific instruction than go. And he goes. And on top of that, he trusts in God's promise to give him innumerable descendants, even though he and Sarah were very old. And obviously he has a slip up there with Hagar and Ishmael, but overall he still actually believes in the promise. So faith of this kind is not simply belief. Faith actually is about how we live. Faith is about how we relate to God. When Paul talks about faithfulness and righteousness, he is invariably talking about covenant relationships. He is talking about when he talks about God's faithfulness and God's covenant, he is talking about God's commitment to upholding and fulfilling the promises he has made to his people in the form of his covenants. So when he talks about our faithfulness, he's talking about the same thing. Our faithfulness to our covenant with God. Faith is much more than than merely believing. Faith is about everything we do, everything we live, all of that. All of it is incorporated into faith. It is the way we live our lives. So when Paul talks about faith as as a means of being counted righteous before God, what he's really saying is, look, we have thought all this time that the Torah is the framework for how we live faithfully. and that And we've also thought that the only way to live faithfully was to follow Torah, to study Torah, to live out Torah as best as we can. But evidently, there is a different way. And he says that there's a different way because he looks back and he sees that Abraham, who is held up as one of the most righteous people in the scriptures, was counted as righteous and faithful, and yet he did not have Torah to follow. He did something different. His faith was lived out in a way that was maybe less rigid, less well-defined, and obviously he had some slip-ups along the way. But obviously there are ways to be faithful to God that don't involve that rigid adherence to Torah law. right? Abraham didn't take a Sabbath. Abraham didn't offer sacrifices at the temple. He didn't follow purity rituals. But he did trust in God. He allowed his trust in God to be the guiding factor in his entire life. And that is what faithfulness looked like. Faithfulness for us has to look the same. It's not about just belief. Rather, it is about how we live our lives, how we put our trust in God. That's faithfulness. It's so much more than just belief. It is belief coupled with action. This is one of the things people have wrestled with in the New Testament for a long time, but it, the answer is really obvious. The, the question is, you know, you get all these things in the New Testament that seem to indicate that um, you're supposed to do good deeds, you're supposed to be a good person, and all this stuff, and your salvation seems to rest on it. There's this bit about where Paul says talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then they also talk about being saved by faith alone through grace. How do we reconcile those two? Simple. Faith is not just belief. Your faith is demonstrated by your actions. If your faith does not produce action, if your faith does not radically alter the way you live your life, if you don't have things that you do in your life that are purely the result of your faith and trust in God, you can't truly be said to have faith. That's what Paul is talking about here. That's going to be important as you read through the rest of Romans, that that he is building his interpretation of the gospel on Abraham, first and foremost. Abraham is the foundation of Paul's belief in the gospel. Now I'm going to move on to the two questions we have, because they're really good questions. Uh, And I, I imagine that many of you have them. The first one is, why is it so important that we read the Old Testament genealogies? And I think I'm going to add on to this a little bit that I'm sure most people are also wondering is why is it so important that we read all these lists of what tribe got what and who got assigned to work which shift in the temple and all these other things uh, because Chronicles is full of those. Now the the first most basic answer is well look at the title of the book it's Chronicles it's a it's a record keeping book uh, and and they are keeping records of of who is descended from who at least in terms of in like important genealogies who's descended from who and they're keeping records of who did what. So there is a practical purpose there. For theological purposes, God promised that there would always be a descendant of David to sit on the throne of Israel. The genealogies are how we keep track of that. We've uh, we've believed for a long time, thousands of years at this point, that the Messiah would have to be a descendant of David. Even the Jews often believe that the the Messiah would have to come from the Davidic bloodline and the genealogies of the Old Testament will make another appearance in the Gospels because they prove that Jesus is descended from David. They also teach us some other interesting things if you paid t- if you've been really looking closely as we've um, read through all of the Old Testament books, particularly Genesis, you'll see that there are some people in those genealogies, who might surprise you. They might be the sort of people you wouldn't think God would want included in his own bloodline, but they're there. Because God works through people we wouldn't expect. right? Think about Judah and all the terrible things Judah does in, in Genesis and, and the part where he sleeps with a prostitute. or Actually, no, sorry. He sleeps with a woman he thinks is a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law, who was widowed by both his sons, he sees with her and has babies through her. And it's through those children that David and, therefore, Jesus are descended from. Um, and so little things like that are important in the genealogies because they teach us that God, God works through anybody and everybody. There is nobody who is beneath God's action and God's love. That um, That matters. I think the other really important thing to bear in mind about these genealogies, as well as all the lists of who got what jobs, is that they remind us that we are dealing with real people and real stories and real events. Even if the stories sometimes have a bit of embellishment added to them, the people in them were real. The stories are real. It's good to remind ourselves that this is not fiction. This is not mythology. These are stories about real people. They really, truly matter. And that's powerful. Now, I am not saying that every time you read through the Bible, you should read through all those genealogies. If I'm being totally honest with you, I usually skip over them these days. I've read them... I, I've read them too much. I, I just, I, I cannot make myself sit through some of those genealogies and some of those lists now. I have read them all at this point. I mean, I, I have, and I do think that it's important. If you've never read through the whole Bible before, I, I do think it's important that you read through those genealogies at least once and maybe periodically after, just to remind yourself that we're talking about real people, that, that the people who wrote these books down could, traced their ancestry fairly well, uh-uh. right? They knew who lived uh-uh. when and where. Uh-uh. They, they had an idea of who their ancestors were and what they did. Um, here's a good example of why, how, how powerful this can be. When I was ordained in the Methodist church, I was given this document by, by our bishop. It says this. On September 1st, 1784, John Wesley ordained Richard Watcote and Thomas Vassey deacons. The next morning, September 2nd, 1784, he ordained them elders and Thomas Cook superintendent. A few days later, the three of them set out for America with documents and instructions from Wesley for the founding of the Methodist Church in America. During a conference held at Baltimore in December 1784, that purpose was consummated and Francis Asbury was ordained deacon, Elder and Superintendent by Thomas Cook on December 25th, 26th, and 27th, respectively. Francis Asbury ordained William McKendry and Elijah Heading. William McKendry ordained James O. Andrew. Elijah Heading and James O. Andrew ordained Edmund S. Janes. Edmund S. James ordained Cyrus D. Foss. Cyrus D. Foss ordained Edwin H. Hughes. Edwin H. Hughes ordained Robert N. Brooks. Robert N. Brooks ordained Ernest T. Dixon, Jr., Ernest T. Dixon Jr. ordained me, and on this 12th day of June 2021, I ordained you an elder in the United Methodist Church. I love this document. I think it is incredible. Not only to see sort of the spiritual lineage that connects me to John Wesley, but also to see how few generations there are between me and, and, and one of my theological and spiritual heroes. The same is going to be true for a lot of the people who wrote st- these stories in the Old Testament. They're tracing, they're tracing the distance, the generational gap between them and the people who they're writing about. Fascinating. Very powerful for them. And again, just a good reminder for us that, that these are real people we're reading about. These are real stories. Um, it's unlikely that the names in these stories are made up. Some of the stories may have embellishments in the details. Some of them may be so old that we will never really know how accurate the details of the story are. But I believe the names, the names are true. The names lend credibility to otherwise hard-to-believe stories because people are tracing it. They're not just, especially the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, you think about how far back those stories really go. But look at what the genealogies do there. The person writing them down is saying, look, I didn't just hear this from anybody. This is from my great-grandpa who heard it from his grandpa who heard it from his grandpa who heard it from his grandpa. They establish legitimacy because they're saying, look, these stories have been passed down through the generations of our people. We didn't invent them. They have been passed down to us through our ancestors. And and the reality is that, that cultures and societies that have that kind of strong oral storytelling tradition um, it's not like the game of telephone, right? Oral tradition gets gets bad-mouthed all the time because people say it's like the game of telephone where you start the phrase at one end of the group and by the end of the line, it's something completely different. That doesn't happen in real-life oral tradition. In cultures that do that, people are so incredibly good at telling stories that what they do is they, they tell the story over and over and over again, and people who who are authorized to know the story will correct them on the details until they get it exactly right, Every time They have a system in place to ensure that they accurately and faithfully repeat the story before they are allowed to take responsibility for passing that story on to a new generation. So by listing their ancestors, they're also listing, hey, these are the people we heard the story from. This is how you know you can trust us. So in a way, some of these Old Testament genealogies are like the credentials of the author saying, this is why you can trust me to read this story well. So that's why the, the genealogies matter. Now the next question is a really good one, which is uh, how does Luke twenty three forty three fit into this idea of, of the resurrection and, and the coming kingdom when Jesus told the thief that he would be with him today in paradise? The background for that question, of course, is all those times that I've told you that the gospel and the Bible are not about escaping this world and getting to heaven. They are about God coming to save this world, to recreate it, and and that we will inhabit it with him after the resurrection in the new creation, right? The Bible is God's rescue mission where he brings his kingdom about here on earth. So what is this bit about the thief joining Jesus in paradise? Really good question. Uh, And and the person asking it rightly points out that the word being used for paradise is a word that's really only used twice elsewhere in the New Testament, describing like an actual sort of park-like place, uh, which, you know, you're talking about a place with lots of plants and and water features and a very garden-like atmosphere, kind of like a botanical garden sort of deal. We love those places now. They're beautiful and peaceful, but imagine how much more they are... uh, held in esteem in a place like ancient Israel, where there's not a whole lot of water. It's very dry and arid and hot. Um, and, and that sort of park-like place would be truly awe-inspiring. Um, very important word. Uh, this, this has been interpreted in a few different ways. But they all bear something in common, which is that the, the Bible does seem to insist that between our death and the day of resurrection, we are in some way... At least semi-conscious and aware of what's going on. I think some of the best explanations for it kind of compare it to like a state of blissful dream-like sleep, right? You're resting, you're not sort of fully aware and fully conscious. The Bible really does insist that our bodies matter. We are only fully human when we, when we are embodied, and so a disembodied existence cannot be a full existence, which is why the resurrection matters. So there's this idea that in between our death and the resurrection, those of us, at least who are who are counted as righteous, um, are in this sort of blissful, dreamlike state, right? The Bible refers to heaven largely as this place where God is right now and where uh, things are are being stored up for that last day, right? Jesus talks about storing up your treasures in heaven. Um, but if I tell you that I've got beer in the fridge, that doesn't mean that in order to enjoy the beer, you have to go climb into the fridge and drink the beer there, right? You know, you go get the beer out of the fridge and enjoy it in the living room or the kitchen or wherever. Store up your treasures in heaven because that's where you keep them until the appropriate time to enjoy them. And then you'll enjoy them here on earth when it's when it's recreated, right? When Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of John that he's going to prepare a place for them, right, He's going to prepare dwelling places for them in heaven. The word that he uses, the Greek word, does not refer to a place that you would inhabit permanently. It refers to like a roadside inn, a place you stay temporarily on your way to your ultimate destination. So the Bible really treats the idea of heaven, or in this case paradise, as like this place where you go to rest and wait for the final consummation of everything, when God will remake heaven and earth, And we will dwell with him for eternity in the new creation in our newly remade resurrection bodies. So what Jesus is telling this thief is, that's what he's going to be doing. He's going to die. He's going to die. But he will be with the Lord that very day in heaven. As they await the day of resurrection. This is a bit different from how we normally like to think of this stuff, I know, because we, we, we have all really been raised at one point or another to think about heaven as like the ultimate destination, but that is just not what the gospel teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. Heaven is where we go to wait for God to raise the dead, to recreate the world, to dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We get that image very powerfully, by the way, at the very end of Revelation. And we'll talk about that when I preach on Revelation at the end of the year. But the image is very powerfully of of this, this new city of Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens to earth. So this is not a story of Jesus saying, don't worry, today you're going to be in the ultimate paradise, the final destination. Rather, he's telling him, look, what's coming next for you is a good thing. It may not be the last thing you experience because one day you'll be raised from the dead, but there is this promise that for those who, who are counted as righteous, when we die, there is there is a good thing waiting for us between now and the day of the resurrection. Right? It's not like... Uh, the, the reason this matters, by the way, is that Jewish t- teaching up to this point hasn't really emphasized that all that much. It's talked about... There, there, there's this sort of Jewish idea of an underworld that they call Sheol, which you'll see referenced sometimes in the Old Testament. and Sometimes it's just referred to as the pit. And it's not really a happy, it's not really a bad place, but it's not really a happy place either. It's like this dark gloomy underworld where the dead are waiting for God to finally step in and do something. And this is really one of the first times that Jesus himself says, no, that's not what happens. And actually, the early Christians believed that Sheol was a real place, that until until the death and resurrection of Jesus, the dead did go to wait in Sheol, a a fairly dark, gloomy place that wasn't necessarily a place of punishment, but it wasn't a place of happiness or rest either. It was just sort of you were there. It wasn't great. It was a little depressing. Um, And that when Jesus dies on the cross, And the price for all our sins is finally fully paid. He descended to Sheol and led the righteous people into heaven. That's what the early Christians believed. That's still, in a sense, what the Orthodox Church believes in the East. Um, The terminology they use is a bit different. But more or less, that's what they believed. That his death on the cross freed the people from this place of Sheol, and brought them into heaven. And so in a sense, there may be this idea that what Jesus is telling that thief right there is, look, I'm about to forgive your sins. You're not even going to go to Sheol. You're going to go with me straight to the good place to await the final day. So there is this seismic shift in what people believe about, at least what God's people believe, about what happens immediately following death right here. Because now it's not the place that people just go to this Dark and gloomy place to wait for the resurrection, but actually that those who are righteous will maybe go to this really blissful, peaceful place. You gotta understand, up until this point, even the righteous weren't exactly thrilled about the idea of death because they were gonna go to Sheol, they were gonna go to this place that's dark and gloomy and unpleasant for who knows how long while they wait for God to do something. Now Jesus is saying, No, 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 death isn't like that anymore. Now when you die, it's blissful, it's restful. It's peaceful, and you will be with your God. It's very different from what Jewish people would have been taught their whole lives up to this point. It doesn't negate the fact that that this is still a place where you're going to wait for the final day of the of the resurrection, when all people will be raised from the dead, when God will recreate the heavens and the earth. Right? It doesn't change any of that. It changes what our expectations are about what happens between now and then. So that's why that's important, and that's where that fits in. That's all for this week, folks. As always, if you have questions about the Bible, you can email them to me at forest.divinny at asburycc.org. You can ask them to me in person. If you see me in person, you can ask them via our church Facebook page, however you want to do it. Uh, But I'm always, always, always happy to answer your questions. I'll be back next week with a new podcast. Until then, God bless you all.